last day. We talk about jabs and then hopefully have some time for questions. Um, I'm indebted to an article by Rodney Clapp called That Glorious Mongrel, How Jabs Destroys the Heresy of White Christianity. It's a great article in a great book called Border Crossings. Highly recommend it. It will stimulate your thinking about lots of different topics. Uh, I think I mentioned the book to you the other day. Here's what Rodney Clapp says this article is about. He says, the argument I want to make here can be simply stated. Jazz can make us, especially the us of white, middle, and upper class, relatively comfortable American believers, better Christians. Jazz, I want to suggest, can help us correct the heresies of disembodiment, privatization, and the skewing of eschatology. And don't worry, I'm going to explain what all three of those are about. And I'm going to suggest some other ways that I think jazz can help us, particularly the us of white middle class and upper middle class uh, American Christianity. Um, a few general introductory points to make about jazz. The first is, again, I'm going to make this in every time I talk about music or art, that the purpose of art is to glorify God and join forever. Right? Remember that in what we're doing. Okay? And there are all kinds of wonderful musics in the world. We talked about that a lot yesterday, right? God has made a world full of God-glorifying potentiality, and the Western classical tradition does not exhaust the God-glorifying potential that he's built into his creation with regards to music. Harold Best, who for years is the dean of the conservatory at Wheaton, uh, has a good book that I think is helpful about music. Um, he says this, just as there is no universal music, there is no universal aesthetic. The trick is in locating and defining quality amidst the plethora of legitimate musics. It may be entirely wrong to say that musical pluralism in our present culture is legitimate only if it includes or is dominated by Western classical music. To hold this is to imply that even though excellence can exist in other forms of music, it is derivative or contingent. In other words, other musics are only good to the degree that they're like Western classical music. That's, that's, there's no biblical basis for that idea. And we need to recognize it for as a very dangerous trend, actually, when particularly you think about the book of Revelation, the idea that all the kings of all the earth will bring their glory into the heavenly city. Um, it's important that we understand that there's lots of good music out there. All right? So, now jazz in particular. Jazz in particular. I'm going to start with Rodney Clark's points about how jazz helps us and then add some more. How many of you all are jazz fans? Some of you, yeah, listen to jazz a little bit. Some of you, like, not really into jazz, don't like it, haven't heard it much. Come on, I know there's some of you. Yeah. I hope that you'll, that you'll come to at least have a, a better way to get, get an entry point into hearing jazz a little bit. I do think, uh, like any genre, it takes some time and effort to enter into it and, and learn to appreciate things about it. And there may be different kinds of things that um, may be a better entry point for you than something else. I think the piece that I'm going to play at the end here is a pretty good entry point. It's a pretty simple song. It's not that kind of wild or far out. You can discern a melody you know, most of the time. And the rhythm and the time is pretty straightforward. Um, but one of the things that you, you see, and, and I think it's true, and this is most of this, but it's really particularly important in jazz, is to understand where things have come from. It's really important, like for instance, if you um, you know, got Ken Burns' uh, video, you know, that long video series he did on jazz. There's things about it that, you know, jazz critics would say you should have focused more on small groups and not so much on big bands, whatever. Um, but the thing is, it does help give you a good overall historical overview and help you understand who are some of the important players. One of the things that um, I really like is that All Music Guide to Jazz. It's a book, big, huge, thick book. It basically just reviews of different um, jazz records, but it also in the back it has all these chronologies. So if you want to look at a particular instrument, like the alto saxophone, you kind of see who are the major important players and who are they influential upon. And it gives some good little short kind of synopsis of history of that. So it's really, really great thing. I haven't been to that website. I haven't seen a lot of that stuff on my website now, right? You know, the All Music Guide, you ever go there? Wow. Um, Google it, I think it is. All right, so it, it, here's why we should study jazz. For one thing, I think it develops aspects of God's um, glorifying potential in music in ways that some other musics don't, particularly improvisation. Improvisation. Improvisation is an, an amazing thing, a glorious thing. 
And, um, and jazz is really great in that regard. Part of the point of the seminar is to help you learn to glorify God by enjoying things you might not have enjoyed before, or to help you better enjoy things that maybe you're already enjoying. Or maybe to challenge your enjoyment of some things that really aren't nearly as good as some other things. Alright? So here I hope to, to help you with all three of those things that I'm going to suggest. So here's the first point. Rodney Clapp says that jazz challenges disembodiment. What does that mean? Well, it basically refers, he's referring to the tendency of Christianity, especially white Protestant Christianity, to be very Gnostic in its approach. In other words, to think that religion and piety and all those things exist in the head, in the mind, but not in the body. This is what, talk number four? Yeah, raise your hand if you need talk number four. Oh, line guys? Have y'all didn't raise your hand before? I thought they were, we only needed ten copies. We don't have enough still. Yeah, you might have to share. I'm going to podcast again. Yeah, I saw like five people raise their hands. I'll give this one away too at the end. If you have my email address and you want to email me up, Chad, you can, you can get one from me later. Paul, why don't you give yours somebody to put on? Because I'll, I'll send it on the list. You don't have one yet anyway. Okay. Okay. So sorry. All right. Jazz challenges disembodiment. Let me get back to that. So here's, here's the point. Listening to jazz is a bodily experience. When you, when you watch people listen to jazz, they do things like cock their head, you know, tap out, you know, their, with their hand, the rhythm, they move their feet, they move their body. And that's a good thing. Uh, in a lot of ways, Western Protestant Christianity is not very comfortable with music or anything that involves our body. There's still sort of this leftover baggage uh, from the sort of platonic influence upon Christianity. What I mean is, you know, Plato and a lot of the Greek philosophers thought that your body was, uh, was bad, was evil, and your soul, the pure part of you, was trapped in that body. And heaven and sort of, you know, what we're all go aiming for, the goal of life is to finally be set free from your body so that you can be more pure and spiritual. Um, that's not Christianity at all. But in a lot of settings, that's still what people think Christianity is about. And I, I, you know, I have friends of mine that talk about, you know, one day we'll be free of our first pursuits. You know, no, you're going to be physical for all eternity. And jazz is one of the things that helps remind us that it's a great thing to be physical and to be embodied. That to, to hear music that, that captures your whole being. It's very different, you see, from the way the Western classical music tradition has developed recently to this point now, where when you listen to classical music, how do you do it? You're quiet. You sit there absolutely still. You're uncomfortable if you even cough in a concert hall. Right? I don't think that's a, a great way to listen to music much at all myself, but you can't do that with jazz. When you, uh, when you listen to jazz, you find that people are involved, they're moving, they're clapping, they clap in the middle of a song. Oh my gosh. You know, if someone does a particularly great solo, that you know, people will break out in spontaneous applause. They're involved bodily, and that's an important thing. Um, the interesting thing, though, is intellectually, it's a very challenging music. And so what, it's, not, it's a great combination, sort of bringing together two things that often are not together. There's some musics that are very bodily, but they don't involve the mind very much. And then there are other musics that are very intellectual, um, but they don't involve the body or they don't engage the body. But jazz really does both. It's, it's as complex as you, as you could want. It's, it's some of the most challenging, uh, intellectually speaking, music that there is. Rhythmically, it's based on very complex African polyrhythms, which are, polyrhythms means that you can have sort of one sort of pulse and beat going on at the same time, another one is going on. Yeah, like that, right? So I can tap three in one hand and four in the other, right? And I go, that's three, four, one, two, three, four, and I do two, three, one, two, three, and I put them together. Like that? That's three against four. So you got those two going, I can't do any other ones. But there's lots of other ones that you can do. And if you're a drummer, you can, you know, if you're a good jazz drummer, you can do four different ones with your four different feet. And there's all these different levels of rhythm going on together. Um, it's very, it's very interesting. And then harmonically, 
right? I mean, when you're playing a song, like if you, you know, hear Joel play, like, okay, here's the, the basic chord structure, but he doesn't stick to the basic chord structure at all. Every time he's playing different chords, he's listening to where the soloist is going. The soloist is outlining different chords and the chords that are on the page, substituting chords for the chords that are on the page. The bass player is doing the same thing, outlining different chords and the chords on the page. And the piano player, and they're all trying to listen to each other and catch it together, but maybe the saxophonist does something that takes the piano player down a road he wouldn't have otherwise went down. And then maybe the bass player does something that takes everybody else in a different direction. The drummer's listening, trying to pick up on what's going on and either add to it or take it a different way, right? It's very much like a relay race. If you kept passing the baton back and forth, you know, all the time. And there's almost a sense in good jazz that you're like, they're about to drop it all the time. And it's part of the tension and the release that makes the music really exciting to listen to. Um, so that it's very complex to play and even to listen to. Uh, sometimes I think it's helpful, you know, the first time to listen to a piece, maybe to just pick out one instrument and just listen to what they do and then go back and listen to it again. Listen to what the bass player does this time. Now listen to what the drummer does. I think often the drums and the rhythm are one of the easier entry points. The, the, just the instrumental um, technical virtuosity is, is another aspect that even if you don't know much about jazz, you can appreciate the technical aspect. Say, wow, you know, they're an incredible skill on in their instrument. And maybe that can be a place for you to enter in. Um, but it's, it's very physical and intellectual music. And so it challenges disembodiment. It also fights against privatization. This is another point that Platt makes. And this, what he means by this is the way we compartmentalize our lives. And I, I kind of sort of led into this with my last point, but what Clapp is referring to particularly here is the way in the Western classical music tradition, music has been taken, taken out of ordinary everyday life and it's been put off into like a museum or a concert hall, or a conservatory, and it's set over there. And if you want to have that music be part of your life, you have to go there and be part of it there. It's not all around us, involved in our lives as much. Now, you know, with, with um, MP3 players and iPods and all that kind of stuff, some people are able to get that music back into their everyday life. Um, but in a lot of ways, that tradition um, helps, encourages, unfortunately, uh, just a sense that, you know, here's the music thing I do and I do this thing over there. And we don't need any help doing that because we already do that. Part of the pressure of living in a postmodern world is it really squeezes you into wearing different hats in different situations. So much so that it's hard to know who you really are anymore. And it's one of the things people say, you know, sociologists say about, about your generation, is that what you've basically had to do is you've had to grow up and learn how to be the person you need to be in different situations. You're a student in this situation, you're a friend over here, you're all these different things at a time when you're trying to establish your own identity, which is what adolescence in a lot of ways is about. It's a very confusing time. Um, and I think that that just it gets more and more intense the more our culture um, puts pressure on you in different ways, stresses you out. When we're stressed out, we tend to sort of try to find safety in sort of finding a role that we can play that's comfortable for us. And um, so privatization, compartmentalizing our lives, um, connecting the dots is, is very, very important, very, very difficult. My friend Steve Garber, who's an author and just a bloody guy, he says that one of the keys for you to know and for, you know, if you're a pastor working with college students, to know that the gospel is actually taking root in their lives um, is has the gospel connected to the way you think about your sexuality? Because the culture tells you in so many ways that if there's one thing that's yours, it's your body. You can do with it what you want. But, and, and a lot of people will become Christians and never connect those dots. It's very easy in our culture to just add another role, Christianity and another role that you play when you're with your RUF friends or church or your family. Um, but it's not really connecting the dots for the rest of what you live. Well, jazz can actually fight against that. Because jazz, jazz is, 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 is connected um, music. It really is about listening to one another. I remember uh, uh, in college being in a class where you know we just basically got together with a professor and a whole you know a, a different band and a whole band. You know the students were basically a jazz band and the professor was thinking about saxophone. And I remember one day he turned off the lights and made us play in the dark 
not able to see each other at all. To encourage us to listen. To really, I really have to hear. Like, you know, with the jazz group, sometimes when, you know, the saxophonist is ending his solo, he'll turn to the next person. You may not see that on the record, right? But he turns to the next person, and, and the next says, okay, I'll pick up and take it from here. But, you know, really good musicians, they, they end their solo in a way that the next person knows it's ending. There's musical things that can do to let people know it's ending. And, um, and so they were trying to train us to learn how to do that without needing to even look at each other, how to really listen to one another. Um, I think that's, that's really great. It's a communal affair. Jazz is a communal affair. It's group improvisation. There's constant interplay, not just with the musicians, but with the listeners, too. In this piece that I'm going to play you, um, Johnny Griffin, the saxophonist, plays a couple courses. I mean, he plays a couple times through. And then the crowd starts to pick up on this is more than just an ordinary moment. Like he's fallen into something. He's beginning to explore something that's taking him into new uncharted territory. There's that sense. Like the, the thing I love about this recording, I'm going to play you, is there's other recordings from the same night of the same song. They did it several times. But it doesn't sound anything like the, the recording that I'm going to play you. Like the saxophonist started going down a, a road this time the crowd picked up on it and starts going nuts and it pushes him to a higher and higher height so it's not just an interplay between the musicians themselves it's between the musicians and the audience and it, it, it's it's a really amazing thing it's why it's why jazz musicians hate playing in the studio generally they like playing live and that's why I'm going to play you a live recording because I think it was the best. There have been even many times when they've made um, jazz records where they've set up like a club atmosphere in a studio to do recording. So there's a cannonball out of the record, uh, Mercy, 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 it's that way. For years and years and years, people didn't know what this, you know, it said recorded live at whatever club, I can't remember now. And people were like, where is this place? And years later, they revealed, well, they basically just set up tables and Waiters and waitresses, you hear drinks, you know, clinking <coughs> in the background, but it's all in a recording studio, but it's set up live, like a, like a, like a jazz club, right? Um, jazz music is, uh, is best played in intimate settings where you can be right next to the performers, right close to them, um, and they can feel you and you can feel them. Um, there, there's a lot of people, there's a, there's a book, Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences, have any of y'all ever read that book? It was a very important book in the neo-con, you know, conservative movement. Um, it was written in the 40s, I think. But he talks about the problem with jazz. It's why he doesn't like jazz. He says it's about anarchy. And it's all about the individual. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's not about anarchy. It's about the whole group coming together in a way that lifts up one person for a moment to a height that he couldn't get to by himself. The soloist can't go where he wants to go by himself unless the whole group works together, uses their gifts to lift him up. That's a beautiful picture of community. Beautiful picture. Um, Ronnie Clapp puts it this way. Jazz is not a music of atomistic individualism, but of communally engaged musicians who can fully become the musical individuals they are for the duration of a particular performance, only through dynamic interaction with other musicians and listeners. I simply ask us to consider how much of our Christian worship and our practice of faith in general is more akin to the framing of the concert hall experience than of the jazz performance. And what he's saying is that the jazz performance of this communally engaged people, it's not an audience, and performers, performers who never really even notice you or take note of you. You know when the conductor comes on, he might briefly turn and give you a little nod, but, but, but you, it really doesn't matter whether you're there or not. That's not true of jazz. And, and I think in a lot of ways, our churches tend to be more like the performer audience kind of vibe rather than this blurring of the lines between audience and performer that jazz really encourages. Third point that Clap makes, makes is it can help our skewed eschatology 
by recovering the already not yet tension. Um, eschatology means your kind of your view of the end times, or more broadly thinking about what we were made for, what our intended goal is. And um, the already not yet tension is deeply embedded in Christianity. The idea that Christ has already come, He's already conquered sin and death, and not yet, not yet, do we see the full consummation of that. We still taste that, even though death has lost its sin. But there will come a day when death will no longer, will no longer have any, any power whatsoever. Okay, that's the already not yet tension. And it's an important one if you want to understand what Christianity is about. Jazz, that's what Clap argues, and he's exactly right. Jazz, like the African spirituals that gave it birth, is about joy in the midst of sadness and about longing and hope. It's filled with tension. And thus it expresses life after the fall a lot more honestly than a lot of so-called Christian music. It, 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 it has both joy and incredible pathos, sadness. It's based on the blues, and yet there's, there's play, there's improvisation. It's, if you give me this, if you limit my options, I can still make something beautiful out of it. If I have to stick to this chord progression, I can look, I can substitute this chord for that. I can play this melody instead of that one. It's interesting, improvisation is a way of life for oppressed peoples. They have to make do with what they're given. And, uh, and, and jazz is like that. It holds together this already not yet tension. Here's the way Rodney Campos, I think this is beautiful. Jazz is the eschatological tension that is the human condition set to music, lived as music, able to celebrate and certainly to dance, but also in the same breath, aching and grieving and raving and never satisfied with the tired old world as it is. Now I want to say something about the spirituals. There's a very important book by James Cone. I wouldn't agree with all of his theology. He's a liberation theologian. But his book, The Spirituals and the Blues, is very interesting. He talks in there about how the, the Negro spirituals were not just about high in the sky hope that one day we'll die and then we'll go to heaven and finally be released. But he shows how embedded in the spirituals were secret messages in a sense, that they had a double meaning. They were, for, they were about justice now as well as hope for the future. That crossing over the River Jordan meant something in particular. And when they would sing that, it was code language for we're going to leave tonight and we're going to cross over the Missouri River, right? Or, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, it's a very interesting book. And what he shows is that in the spirituals, and I think this is important because jazz uh, is built on, on the spirituals in a lot of ways, the spirituals have this sense of anger and demand for righteousness, but it's sort of, it's sort of hidden in a way. So there's this already not yet tension that's in there. There's a, a longing, and it's a fascinating thing, you know, that the way that the, um, you know, the white slave owners gave the Bible, you know, you can read some of the slave catechisms, do you know about these? You can read some of the catechisms, the way they taught the slaves what Christianity was, you know? You know this about, anybody, you know? Um, what did God make you for? For to make a crop, you know, this sort of, this is the kinds of things that the slave owners teach. But the fascinating thing is, when the slaves heard the Bible, especially if a few of them could learn to read and actually begin to read the Bible, it sort of completely backfired on the slave owners who intended Christianity to make the slaves docile. But instead, in a lot of ways, it made them long for righteousness, not just in the future, but here right now. And the spirituals actually give um, voice to that in a lot of ways. And jazz has a lot of that going on in it, too. There's a sense in which this world is not right. There's a crying, there's an aching. You hear it so clearly in John, in, uh, John Coltrane in his saxophone. It's, it's an ache. I mean, some of these instruments, it's interesting how much they try to mimic the human voice in the way that they're able to get the notes in between the notes on the piano. And they're able to modulate you know, the sound to make it sound like a human cry. But yet there's also times when there's great freedom and fun and a sense that, you know, see how fast I can play this and not, sort of not fall off the tightrope and all that kind of stuff. It's all together mixed in with jazz. Um, there's a couple of 
couple other points I want to make, and that, that kind of exhausts what Clive has to say. And I definitely commend his article to you because I've just touched the surface of what he has to say about all those areas. Um, but I also want to talk about this. This is another thing that I think jazz is very helpful for, for Christians to think about, is jazz helps give us a model for discipleship. So here's what I mean. Jazz <coughs> teaches root God, respect for a tradition, but also the importance of adding your own unique voice to that tradition. Uh, the way I like to say it is jazz gives us roots and wings. Roots and wings. It, it, it teaches a respect for a tradition and a community that's bigger than our peers, the importance of adding our own voice. When I was at Berkeley, you know, it's fascinating. Like, what you really have to learn to learn jazz is you really have to learn the tradition. You have to learn the major players. You have to learn the important tunes. You even are encouraged to learn particular solos. But then, all of that stuff is supposed to get into your system, and then you have to find your own voice. And it doesn't even, it's not even just what notes you choose to play. Your own voice even extends to the sound on your instrument. You know, saxophonists that are trying to find a sound that doesn't sound just like Coltrane. It doesn't sound just like Art Pepper. It doesn't sound like Charlie Parker. It sounds like them. And there are a few players that you can identify instantly with one or two notes. <coughs> there are some that I can do that. Um, if you listen to jazz for very long, you'll be able to do that. That's a remarkable thing. To know that you can tell the difference just like that from Miles Davis and Lee Warner on the trumpet. Not even before they even play hardly any notes. Right? Um, they're, they're adding their own voice, and yet they have tremendous respect for the tradition. Jazz musicians continue to play what they call standards, which are songs that everybody should learn. Basic building blocks. Right? See, I think in a lot of ways, Christianity today doesn't know what to do with that. We, in a lot of settings, what, what it means to make disciples means to make cookie-cutter Christians that look exactly like everybody else. We, we don't seem to understand how to find this balance between everybody you know, coming to understand Christianity and the basics and what the gospel is, and then giving you freedom for how is that going to be lived out? What is my calling going to be? And there's different ways that that gets expressed. Sometimes it's expressed in sort of discipleship models where you, everybody goes through the same material. Here's what it means to be disciples. We take you through this material, and then when you're done, then you can take other people through this material with no really taking into account the individual that's in front of you. That happens sometimes. We also, I, I also have seen, and I think this is another variation on the same idea, is the idea that if you're a Christian, you know, you need to do this. But all Christians need to do this. So all Christians need to be missionaries, or they need to go on staff with some Christian ministry. Um, we have a very hard time, I think, um, embracing the idea that Christians have a variety of callings, they have unique gifts, talents, personalities, even unique stories. God may be working on something in you, and he may be working differently on somebody else at a different time. Like he may be eventually going to deal with you in this area of your life, but right now he's working on this area. You know, lots of lots of variations. Remember, we deal with God who is a personal God. Who deals with us as persons, as individuals, not just as a mass to be better Christian community. Um, the other thing I think that's really helpful for us in thinking about jazz is it's redemptive. And Rodney Clark has a quote from Dexter Gordon, he's a famous jazz saxophonist, where Gordon says that jazz is a glorious mongrel that takes everything and makes it new. It, it's awesome. It takes everything and makes it new. Um, jazz standards generally are pop songs. They were pop songs of the day in the 30s, in the 40s, 20s even, um, that the jazz musicians took and then would improvise over, come up with new melodies, come up with some different chord uh, progressions, chord substitutions. Uh, but you continue to see that, and this leads into the next point, that jazz is improvisational. And um, there's an interesting guy named Michael Polanyi, who's a um, scientist who became a philosopher who talks a lot about um, how knowledge, so much of knowledge and what we know is intuitive. And one of the big problems in the modern world is that we feel, I think, shy or self-conscious about saying we believe in God because we can't really prove it in the way that modern scientific people would want us to prove it. 
Um, if we can't, we can't present Christianity in a way that it can't be doubted. And so we feel like it's basically just our own personal private experience. It's one of the ways the modern world squeezes it. Polanyi says that that way of thinking is all based on a misunderstanding of how you really know what you know. You, most of what you know, you don't know because you've proved it. Most of what you know, you know because, um, well, various reasons. You, you know it because um, you've chosen or you've believed something. But the hard way to say is all knowledge is based on faith. All knowledge is based on faith. You'll see this idea behind Keller's reason for God, for instance. Um, but one of the things, that I think jazz helps show why Polanyi is right. Here's what I mean. Improvisation, improvisation is not something that you can really do by thinking about it consciously. Um, even though in music school they teach you, okay, if, there, if this chord is there, well, you can play this scale over that chord in this situation. And you can sit down with a piece of music and you can analyze which chord, which scale you can play over which chord in which situation and work it all out. And there's even some examples of that. John Coltrane did that with Giant Steps. That's why if you listen to the recording, the piano player like, completely gets lost in the middle of the solo and stops. And, and you can tell like he's completely lost. Because Coltrane had worked on that solo for months and then he brings it in and springs it on those guys. <laughs> and they, they're trying to like figure out how to play it. Um, so there are examples where people have done that. They've really kind of worked it out. Um, Coltrane is sort of experimenting with a whole new way of thinking about harmony and chords and scales and all that stuff. Anyway. But for the most part, jazz players don't play that way. That's kind of how they teach you in school to play. But jazz players play by hearing the sounds in their head and being able to get what they hear in their head out through their fingers. That, that's how they play. And it's very intuitive. The thing is, you have to listen to a lot of jazz to get to have your, the sounds that sound okay and right to you in your head expanded. When you first start, it'll sound really strange to play a flat five on a dominant seventh chord, right? They do it jazz all the time. The beboppers do it, right? Eddie Pine, who's a swing guitar player, um, had a great way of saying, you know, the, the beboppers flat their fifths. I just like to drink mine. <laughs> like that. But that's, that's one of the things that makes bebop different than swing jazz. Is they, they're always doing these flat fives and flat nines, different, you know, Sounds, they call them tensions on the chords that really sound, oh, they make you pop your head over where they're like, oh, and then it's resolved. Um, but the musicians don't, they don't think so consciously like, oh, I'm going to play, in the middle of this song, I'm going to play flat five. It's going to sound really cool. Um, no, they just, they, those are the sounds they hear, right? What I mean is, so much of improvisation is about sort of embodied uh, knowledge, it, it's, it's intuitive. You can't think at the speeds that the jazz musicians play a lot of times, you're not thinking consciously note to note. You're getting the sounds in your head, you're learning how to get those sounds in your head out through your fingers, and then you're playing. And so much about jazz and improvisation is exploring. How will this, how will these sounds sound over this chord progression? And sometimes you'll hear, you'll even hear in the solo we're going to listen to a minute, um, every one of the guys in their solo will play like a little motif. And they'll keep going and let the chords change underneath it. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because the melody does that. So the chord changes in this song are basically just a 12-bar blues. There's a zillion songs that have that same um, chord structure. But this one, what's interesting about the tune is the melody basically stays on one note. So every one of the guys who's soloing that picks up on that idea and plays one simple motif unless the chords change underneath it. And then sometimes they'll modulate it up even while the chords are staying different. It's just exploring. It's essentially improvisation is like exploring. What is this sound going to sound like against this? And you might say, oh, I like that. I'll go a little farther. Like, ooh, you know, I don't, I don't like that. Um, of course, there's, you know, this common joke among musicians that if you um, play a bad note once, it's a mistake. If you play it again, it's jazz. <laughs> you can sort of convince people sometimes that you meant to play that if you just stick on it. And not letting go of this until I, you know, if I make it sound right to me by keep playing it or trying to find other notes to get in and around it that are going to make it work. Um, anyway, that's improvisation. There, there's freedom within structure, I guess is what I'm saying, and that's something that's basic to what it means to be human. 
Improvisation is a way of life, like I said, for minority cultures. And I believe that Christianity is already on its way to becoming a minority culture. And you better learn how to do life as improvisation. You better learn how to do evangelism as improvisation rather than proclamation. Where you actually hear what people say and then you respond back to them and you interact. So jazz has got to be a way of life. Improvisation is something we've got to learn to be better at. And jazz can help you, I think. Um, then there's a whole thing about the jazz of God, which I'm not even going to get into because I don't have time. Um, there's a very interesting book by Carl Ellis called Beyond Liberation where he talks about thinking a, a very like classical approach to thinking about God. Basically, you know, sort of here are the attributes of God and we study them and we let philosophical um, implications determine the way we think God is versus the jazz of God is the way God actually reveals himself is interacting with us and it kind of blows up our categories. And a lot of us need to, especially in the Reformed tradition, deal with the way God reveals himself in the Bible. And there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. God's a weird God in a lot of ways. That's, that's not the truth, right? Um, Martin Luther used to talk about, you know, these theologians who he said would try to spy upon God and his nakedness. You know, basically try to understand the attributes of God, understand who God is apart from Jesus. And that gets you in trouble. I'll tell you one of the ways it gets you in trouble. If you try and think about the problem of evil or human suffering, and you just start with God is good and God is sovereign and here's evil, you'll get yourself in just a whole spirally mess of confusion and not knowing where to go from there. But it completely changes the way you approach that problem when you understand that God became flesh in Jesus and took on suffering that he didn't have to. Not saying that it, all of a sudden it solves this problem and the tension between God's sovereignty and the problem of evil, but it completely changes the way you approach it. Beware of thinking about God in terms of his attributes philosophically rather than as he's revealed through Jesus. That's important. Um, all right, so here's some things to listen to and things to appreciate. Rhythm, I already talked a little bit about that, polyrhythms and groove. Um, listen for little rhythmic motifs, not just melodic motifs, but rhythmic motifs. Listen for how the drummer will pick up on rhythmic motifs in the soloist or in the piano player. Um, oftentimes, you know, the, uh, the soloist is playing, the piano player is trying to support harmonically what's going on. The bass player is trying to find the middle between the drummer and the piano player. And they're all trying to work together. Uh, listen for uh, tonality and harmonic issues. Listen for how sometimes the piano player will change the chords he's playing to fit the way the saxophonist or, or like Wes is doing on the guitar. Um, even superimposing a whole new chord structure and polytonality is stuff that's going on here. Listen for how the musicians interact to one another, listen to each other. Um, listen while letting yourself feel and move. I don't want to see anybody sitting there with their hands clasped as we uh, listen to this piece, right? Um, go hear live jazz, for sure. Um, like I said, listen sometimes, zooming into the parts, listening to the effect of the whole, um, and then listen to a sense of history and tradition. I put some stuff down there for you. All right, here, here's a couple things in particular. If you want to cue that up, we're about ready now. Um, this is Wes Montgomery. The song is called Blue and Boogie from the CD Full House. The live recording of Wes Montgomery on guitar. Wes Montgomery, you might be interested to know, played all of, with his thumb. Didn't never use a pick, played with his thumb. Um, it's pretty amazing what the technical virtuosity that he has, especially when he starts playing octaves. Octaves, you have to kind of spread your, your hands like that. But because the third and fourth string, the way guitars are tuned, you have to change. You know, you can't just keep one form of move around. You actually do have to change it depending on, you know, what strings you're on. So it's a lot harder than it sounds. And then you'll even start soloing in chords at one point. You'll build up to that. Um, saxophonist is Jim Griffin. Um, the, the rhythm section is Miles Davis's rhythm section from the time, in the 50s. It's, um, uh, who is it? Here. Yeah, Jimmy Cobb on drums and Paul Chambers on bass. Um, it's a great groove. The drummer, you'll hear him playing, right playing, but every once in a while he'll drop little rhythmic accents that we call dropping bombs. You know, they'll just sort of like, you know, little, you know, kind of stuff like that. It just keeps things interesting. Um, melody's real simple. Um, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll say some of this other stuff as a good spot. Why don't we play? <laughs>
searching around on stuff. You know, I'm on e I, I get to subscribe to eMusic. So a lot of times I'll search around there for what seems like the same new. A lot of times I'll come down to put that music there. I don't know. Yeah. Can I comment on free jazz? <coughs> yes, I'll comment on free jazz. I think to understand free jazz, you have to understand where it comes from. Like, you know, part of the meaning is the way it's meaning in relation to what's come before. Um, I think it'd be one of those situations where it's hard for me to know the difference between good and bad free jazz. There have been people that I thought this is really creative. I think in some ways it's pretty easy to make ugly, angry music in free jazz. Much more difficult to do beautiful music in that genre, and um, it's not something that I listen to a lot. So I'm not very qualified. I feel very comfortable saying this is excellent, and this is just um, you know people that are just you know screwing around and calling free jazz. I did. There was this guy George Garzon uh, up at Berkeley, one of the professors, that his quartet was unbelievable. You know, there's some Papatini stuff I've heard that's just really. Beautiful. So there's definitely some good stuff out there. It's not my particular cup of tea, but um, I want to have a world view big enough to understand why it works. And I think that even when you say free, like it doesn't have any structure, there is a sense of structure in a lot of ways too. There's sometimes there's a melody that you're around. Like there's two ways of doing structure. One is to say, here's the structure, like this fence, and you gotta stay in it. And there's another way of doing structure where this is the center point and you have to stay related to it, right? Bounded sets and centered sets, I can call it. I think that there's different ways that music can work. In my sense, the free jazz is more like centered set rather than a bounded set. So it's a little different way, and you've got to make sure you're thinking of it the way it fits of itself. <coughs> what do you think? Yeah. I, I don't know, I'm trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure it out, yeah. Probably have to start with the people that are, you know, maybe follow Coltrane as he goes and begins to explore those sort of things. It's kind of like with Mako Fujimori when he says, how do you paint glory? You know, the sense in which, you know, can free jazz be a sense of trying to reach for something that it can't get to? I, you know, I, I think that's probably part of what's going on in that movement. But it's not everybody's cup of tea, that's for sure. <laughs> Other thoughts, questions? Nobody else? All right, well, I guess you all can go. Thanks so much.